Thanks so much, John. And uh, family, I hope you enjoyed prayer week as much as I did. It was just such a fantastic week, just joining together in prayer, even though we were separated in work and homes and all that. And uh, it was Pastor John and Trisha and the prayer team who put together those great posts every day that kind of guided us down specific paths of prayer every day. And then it all culminated with 24 hours of prayer, this relay race of prayer that started Friday at 6 p.m. and ended Saturday at 6 p.m. And what made me most happy about that whole thing was that the, the slots in the middle of the night actually got taken first. That was amazing. Uh, Cindy and I, we waited to sign up for the 24 hours because we thought, well, you know, we'll probably have to fill in at like 2 a.m. or something. And so when we finally went to sign up, all of the 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. slots were packed full. So that was awesome. And I know that you guys actually did wake up and pray because you called the next person and the baton got passed all the way until it got to us on Saturday afternoon. So mahalo. Thank you for waking up in the middle of the night to pray and passing that baton all the way. Our slot at 5.30, it came right in the middle of the UCLA-USC game. And so there might have been some imprecatory prayers that came out of me against the Trojans. I don't know. Nothing, nothing like torn ACLs or anything crazy like that. Just like cramps that might lead to a missed tackle, you know. Because... My boys in baby blue, they were having the best season out of the last decade, but still they were underdogs coming into this game. And everybody wants to see the under, underdog win, right? Everybody wants to see the underdog win. We all like that. Karate Kid, Rudy, Rocky. You know, we love to see the underdog come from behind and take the victory, right? We all love to see that. Unfortunately, my underdogs came from ahead and took the L in that game last night. So it didn't work out so well for, for my underdogs. But what we've been seeing in Revelation is that increasingly in this world, Christians are going to be the underdogs. More and more and more. There's going to be loss and defeat and suffering ahead for Christians. Family, we are going to be victims of some stuff. But Revelation is also going to remind us today that there is victory for the victims, even in the middle of your victimhood. So if you have your Bible, open to Revelation chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. Revelation 11. And remember, John is writing this book, writing this letter to a group of victims. We saw it at the beginning of Revelation. He's writing this to seven persecuted churches in the province of Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. And there's still, to this day, plenty of churches around the world that experience the same kind of persecution as those churches did. Uh, this month, we have the opportunity to partner with some of those churches through the Thanksgiving Compassion Fund. Our money is going to churches in Vietnam that are struggling under persecution. But still, these churches that we've partnered with for, uh, gosh, 13 years now, they're still meeting every week, sometimes in back rooms or uh, hidden places, they're reaching their neighbors, they're blessing people in need in their neighborhoods, even though there's always the threat of arrest or, or even physical abuse. Uh, some of the pastors that I know over there say it's not persecution unless you're bleeding, okay? Anything less than that is just a love tap. That's the kind of intense life that they live. Now, for us in our culture, we're probably never going to face that level of persecution, not in our lifetime we're probably not going to have that threat of, of arrest and physical abuse hanging over us. But there's always going to be ways that we will 
give up things for our faith. There's always going to be ways that our faith is going to cost us something. Like, say you don't fully support the sinful life choices that your siblings are making, the way that they expect you to. You might be ostracized from your family. Let's say you don't give in to your boss and fudge the numbers on the annual report like he wants you to. You might lose a promotion. You might lose your job. You never know. When you live your life the way Jesus empowers you to live it, you're going to be oppressed sometimes in ways big or small. But today, family, God wants to give you courage, even in the middle of that. Because even in the middle of suffering, victims can experience victory. That's what we're going to see today. So let's pray. Then we'll dig into this great, great text. Father, thank you so much for this week of prayer that we had, reminding us how desperately dependent we are on you for everything. And now, Lord, I pray that you would show us how you love to respond to our neediness, dependency, how you love to show and, and, and have us experience victory even in the deepest, darkest times of life. Thank you that we worship a Savior who was the ultimate underdog, who came from a backwater town and a backwater job to become the, the king of the universe through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Lord, help us to live in the victory that he won on the cross. Thank you for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we live, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to kick it off here. Revelation 11, start right at the beginning, verse 1. Revelation 11, 1. John says, Then I was given a measuring reed, like a rod, with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so now we're getting back into some of the things that Christians disagree about when they read Revelation. Uh, for the past 100 years or so, Christians in America have read Revelation pretty literalistically. And so anytime you see images in Revelation, a lot of Christians have looked for ways that they might be literally fulfilled in very literalistic ways sometime in the future. And so when they get to a passage like this that talks about the temple of God, they assume that it must mean the physical temple in Jerusalem. And so they would say someday the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. And here in Revelation 11, it seems like God is going to approve and, and bless that temple. Well, here's the problem with that idea. The only reason that you would rebuild the Old Testament temple is to restart the Old Testament sacrifices. There's no other reason to have a temple other than to do the sacrifices commanded in the Old Testament. And here's the problem. In Hebrews 10, it says Jesus offered one sacrifice for all sins, forever. And then after he offered that sacrifice, Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of God. Every other priest has to stand all the time and offer sacrifices, not Jesus. He sat down because there's no more sacrifices to be made. So I don't think that John is measuring a physical temple here. He's measuring the spiritual temple that the rest of the New Testament talks about. That's what he's measuring here. 
Like Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that you is plural. All of you are God's temple, that the Spirit of God lives in you. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves, all of you, you're living stones and you're a spiritual house, in other words, a temple. And you are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the temple that John is measuring here is us. He's measuring the big C church all around the world, including all Christians and people of God who have ever lived. So then the question we've got to ask is, well, why? Why is he measuring the church? Is he trying to take a census, figure out how big that church is? Well, not quite. What John's doing here is he's taking an image straight out of the vision that God gave to Zechariah. Look at what it says in Zechariah 2. This is a vision that Zechariah had. He says, I looked up and I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem to determine its width and length. Basically the same vision. The declaration of the Lord is this, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory within it. So God wants to measure his people so that he can be glory within his people, and so he can protect his people to be a wall of fire around his people. Guys, that would have been so encouraging for the people that John was writing this letter to, those persecuted saints. So encouraging. And that's so encouraging for us. No matter what level of persecution or suffering we might be going through, we might be facing. Here's one way that victims can experience victory. Number one, through God's protection. The wall of fire that God puts around his kids. He is measuring us and he's counting us so he can protect us. Sometimes that'll look like physical protection. Like the time when half of the church staff drove a quad off of a cliff in Nevada. Four of us were in that quad. We drove off a cliff. We rolled seven times down the cliff, landed on top of a tree, and somehow all four of us walked away without a scratch. That was the miraculous physical protection of God. Sometimes that'll happen. Sometimes it won't. God doesn't promise that he's going to protect our bodies, but he does promise that he's always going to protect our souls. Always. He promises he's going to protect your status as his child if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. So no matter what happens to you, no matter what kind of suffering you go through, there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. Like Paul says in Romans 8, look at what he says. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul is assuming that we are going to experience affliction and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. He's just assuming that. But he says the love of Christ is going to sustain us through that for however long that lasts. Look at what it says here in verse 2. It says the holy city will be trampled. All of us, God's people, will be trampled for 42 months. 42 months. How long is 42 months? Let's do the math. Here we go. 12 months, 24 months, 
36 months, add another six months. Three and a half years. And for all of you who've been doing the Bible challenge with us, that should give you some major chicken skin right now. Because this week in the Bible challenge, we covered Daniel 7. And Daniel said, the holy people of God will suffer for a time and two times and half a time. Three and a half years. 42 months. And if you pay attention to numbers in your Bible, you'll see that number, 42, over and over again in your Bible. All over the Bible. In numbers, it said there were 42 stages in Israel's journey from the wilderness to the promised land. 42 stages. In the beginning of Matthew, Matthew said there's 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. 42 months, three and a half years. What is that saying? That's the time we've got to get through until we get to the destination that God has for us, whether that's the promised land, whether that's the Messiah, whether that's the return of our Savior. Three and a half that's half of seven, the number of completion. So what that tells you is whatever we got to get through, it's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. However long your suffering lasts, it's not going to last forever. One way or another, God is going to get you through it. He's going to get you to the promised land of eternal life with him. He will. We have God's protection. And then number two, we have God's authority. That's how you experience victory, through God's authority, through his mandate. Look at what God says in verse three. Verse three, he says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days, about three and a half years, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. You remember what the lampstands symbolize? Back in early Revelation, they, re they symbolize the seven churches of Asia, and those seven churches represent all churches for all time. So he's talking about us here, family. This is us. We are telling the world about God's judgment. That's why it says we're dressed in sackcloth. We're mourning. But we are also telling the world about God's grace. That's why we are lamps shining the light of Christ. He's given us authority to do that. We are his ambassadors. Keep going in verse 5. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. Huh. Kind of like the time when Elijah prayed and stopped the rain for three and a half years. God says, we have that same authority. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they went, whenever they want. Yeah, kind of like the time when Moses prayed and turned the Nile River into blood. This is some crazy authority that God has given us as his kids. The way Jesus said it was, he's given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys to the kingdom. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, will not overpower it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You have been given the keys to the kingdom. Keys, that's a, that's a symbol of your authority right there. I learned that in my first ministry job. Uh, first job I had in a church was at this huge church, monster facility, had like 100 rooms, more than 100 rooms across this church campus. And uh, the way it worked was your number of keys was a symbol of how much authority you had, except it worked in reverse of how you would expect. The more keys you had, the less authority you had. Because for guys like me, on the bottom of the totem pole, I was a brand new intern, they would give me one key to open each individual room that I was allowed access to, that I had authority over. So I had to walk around with dozens of keys for each of the different rooms that I had to get into. The guys at the top of the org chart, they had one key that let them into every room across the whole church campus. So I had to walk around all day playing jingle bells on my belt loop. Ching, 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 ching. People could hear me from blocks away whenever I was walking around. But the guys at the top, they had one key to rule them all. That's what they had. And God says to us, you have that kind of authority. You have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Binding and loosing, that was a phrase the rabbis used in those days to talk about bringing people into their synagogues. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you influence over who gets into the kingdom. Like last week, we all prayed for one person. I heard that two days later, the person who one of us was praying for called them up, asked them, how do I be saved? Amazing. That's the kind of authority that we have when we depend on God in prayer. There's just so much authority that you have. But don't get too excited about it. Just because you have authority doesn't mean you're going to have comfortability. Keep going in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. There's some major opposition that's coming now against the church. It says, their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And Christians debate all about what is this great city? Is it Sodom? Is it Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified? Is it Cairo, Alexandria, and Egypt? What city is it? The answer is the great city is every city. The great city is the world that we live in that's always been opposed to God. And so it says in verse 9, some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies, the bodies of the Christians who have been killed, for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Tormented by living a life that glorifies Jesus and speaking about everyone's need for Jesus. They, they see that as torment. And so in response, what's going to happen in this world? Christians are going to be so mistreated, so disrespected, 
that after they die, their dead bodies will be left out on display for days, which would have been just the most cruel and barbaric thing that you could imagine for the people who first read this letter. Because in the Middle East, still to this day, when you die, you just expect your body to be buried within 24 hours. It's just the way it's got to be. And so having your body out in the streets, just on display to the world for days, that's, that's just the worst thing that you can imagine. John is telling us this is the level of animosity that will grow in the world towards Christ and his people. The world is just going to get worse and worse and worse. You know what's amazing to me? Even the world can see that. Even the world can see that. This week I saw NASA put out a statement. They put out this paper explaining why they think we haven't yet discovered any alien civilizations and why they think we never will. Here's why they think that. Because... They see humanity, as they look at our civilization, they see humanity getting worse and worse and worse. And so in this statement, they said, we have ingrained dysfunctions. Ingrained dysfunctions. You know what that is? Just a scientific way of saying a sin nature. That's all that is. Even the world can see a sin nature. And so they assume that any other intelligent species out, out there in the galaxy, they would have the same problem. And so these scientists say that these aliens, if they ever existed, they would have destroyed themselves before they got to the place where they could send ships across the galaxy, just like we would. Man, even our depraved world believes in the doctrine of total depravity, which tells you it's just going to get worse and worse, particularly for the people who want to live apart from that depravity or push against that depravity. We're going to see some suffering, family. We are. It's going to get intense. It's going to seem like we've been defeated, but here's the good news. John says that's only going to last for three and a half days. That's symbolic. We don't know how long that is, but it's very significant that he said three and a half days, not years days. The season of defeat is going to be short. And then look at what it says in verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. That picture, that's taken straight out of Ezekiel 37, when God said he would breathe life into our dry bones. What an incredible thing to imagine, this crazy event happening someday in the future. But you know what? God already allows us to experience that right now by breathing his life into us through his Holy Spirit. So here's another way that victims can experience victory right now. Number three, through God's life. He breathed life into us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now, that changes everything in life. God has breathed his life into you. And I love the way Paul explains in Galatians 2 what that looks like. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. 
He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That right there, that is a life-changing verse because he's showing us how the life of God changes everything in life. I love each little phrase in there. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ died a ugly, gruesome death, which tells me my sin must be ugly and gruesome to cause him to pay for it that way. But at the same time, when Christ died, my sin was crucified. My slavery to sin was killed. I I don't have to do the things that I thought I have to do in the past. He killed off the self-reliance and the self-interest that's been driving me for so long. And so it says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. So there's still a me around. I didn't disappear. It's not that Matt is gone. It's that Matt comes under the influence of Christ. So I'm not the, the, the distorted, selfish Matt that I used to be. I'm increasingly becoming the humble, faithful generous Matt that I was supposed to be. And so he says, the life that I now live in the body, in the body, which tells you this isn't some psycho-mystical experience that he's talking about. This isn't just for like monks living on top of a mountain, praying 18 hours a day and fasting for two months at a time. This is the same life in the body that I lived before, the same crazy, chaotic, busy, using, depressing, encouraging, everyday life that I lived before, except now I live by faith in the Son of God. By faith in the Son of God. It began with Christ, and it ends with Christ. It's all about Christ. Christ killed me so that he could come live through me. That's what it means for God to breathe life into you. God kills you, and then he sends Jesus to live through you. It's a spiritual resurrection that you can experience right now, every moment of every day. Live with the breath of God, the life of God living through you. It's a spiritual resurrection that points to the physical resurrection that you're going to experience one day in the future. John right here, he's given us a little teaser trailer of what's coming later in Revelation. Revelation 20 and 21. He's saying, you'll get to experience spiritual victory right now and physical victory later. And I'm really tempted to just skip to the end, but we can't. We've got a lot of revelations still to go, all right? So we got to keep going. Verse 12, look at what verse 12 says. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at the moment... The same moment, a violent earthquake took place, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the same image that you get in Ezekiel 38 and Zechariah 14, that there is some kind of earth-shaking event that's going to take place as Jesus prepares to come, as he starts the process of his return. Probably not a literal physical earthquake because we're talking about 
worldwide events here, but some kind of earth-shaking event that's going to wake people up, right? It said in verse 13, the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. And our first reaction is probably, well, finally, finally people are going to stop glorifying themselves and start glorifying God, but don't speak too soon because unfortunately what we're going to see in the next few weeks in Revelation is that this little revival is just going to fizzle out. People in the world are just going to go right back to their sin and their idolatry because we saw the last few weeks in Revelation that God's judgment, it, it doesn't lead to life change. God's wrath doesn't lead to repentance. We saw that really clearly in Revelation 9. Fear, fear of God's wrath, that can lead you to temporary life change, but it never lasts. Romans 2.4 is always going to be true. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness leads us to life change. And we received God's kindness through the perfect life and, and, and the brutal death and the glorious resurrection and the loving reign of Jesus. Which is why John says in verse 14, the second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has come and has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We heard the same thing in Daniel 7 this week, almost word for word. And so verse 16, the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones, these 24 elders represent us, remember. They fell face down and they worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Jesus is in the process of coming back. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. They see Jesus saddling up his white horse. He's getting ready to come and put an end to all the evil in the world, the injustice in the world, the suffering in the world, to destroy the people who are destroying the world. And so all the elders in heaven, they're singing the same song that they've sung all through this book. To the Lord God Almighty. To the one who was the one who is, and the one who is to await. It changed here. Did you notice that? This time, there's no the one who is to come. It's just the one who was and the one who is. Why is that? Because Jesus is already in the process at this point of coming to redeem the world to rescue the world, to rule over the world. He's on his way. And in a lot of ways, he's already here. Jesus isn't the one who is to come. He is the one who's already here speaking, acting, ruling in, in many ways through the power of his Holy Spirit. So here's one more way that victims can experience victory, even in the middle of suffering. Number four, through God's presence. 
He is with us right now. One day he's coming in the flesh, but today he's already come through his Holy Spirit. Family, he is present with you right here and with you every day of your life. You've got the victory of Jesus in your life because you've got the spirit of Jesus in your life. He's living inside of you to convict you when you're sinning, to comfort you when you're suffering, to guide you when you're confused, to empower you when you're weak, to encourage you when you're afraid. So you don't have to just try and avoid suffering at all costs, like we always feel like we got to do. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to be afraid of what might happen to you. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about what people might think about you, what people might do to you, because you've got God's presence. You've got God's protection. You've got God's life. You've got God's authority. So you can live your life for God. You can trust God. You can obey God. You can depend on God. You can glorify God. And then just leave the rest up to God in his sovereign hands. You have everything you need to live a victorious life no matter what you're going through right now. Let's pray together. Father, what an encouraging, encouraging word. This would have been for those suffering saints 2,000 years ago. To know that even in the middle of their victimhood, persecution, and suffering, that they could experience victory. Through your presence, protection, through your life, through your authority that you've already given to each one of us as your kids. So Lord, I pray that each one of us right now, no matter what level of suffering or oppression or persecution we might be experiencing, large or small, help us to rest in the victory that you won at the cross and to move forward boldly, courageously in life with your presence guiding us, with your protection empowering us, with your authority pushing us into the dark corners of this world, with your life reviving us, giving us strength to live each day for you. Thank you for Jesus, for his victory. Help us to live in his victory every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.